Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. In Radio Walensky Podcast number one, it's about film and a book. Lee Grant has had a long and distinguished career on stage in film and television as both an actor and director. A graduate of New York's legendary Neighborhood Playhouse, she debuted on Broadway to great acclaim in the play Detective Story in 1949 and went on to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 1951 for the same role. Shortly thereafter, she gave a eulogy at the funeral of a blacklisted friend and immediately was blacklisted herself. She was pretty much unable to work in television or film for the next 12 years. When she did return, it was to an Emmy-winning role in the TV series Peyton Place, a supporting actress Oscar for the film Shampoo, and two other Best Supporting nominations. She went on to a successful career as a director, both of movies and documentaries. Her film, Down and Out in America, won an Oscar for Best Documentary in 1986. Back on August 1, 2015, I went over to the Rex, a small boutique hotel near Union Square in San Francisco, to talk with Lee Grant. Her memoir, I Said Yes to Everything, had just come out in paperback, and she was in town for an event at the Jewish Film Festival. Our conversation was edited down to under a half hour for Bookwaves, but the full conversation lasted over three quarters of an hour and dealt with topics and had language that didn't wind up in the final edit. I want to start by asking you a few questions that are not in your memoir, things that I was curious about as I read your book. You went to the Neighborhood Playhouse. At that point, you tried to be a dancer and various different things, and then you realized that acting was where you were going to go, or your mother realized it. How did you get into the Neighborhood Playhouse? How did you find out about it? Do you remember? You know, it's sheer luck. You know, so much in life is fate or luck. The title of my book, I Said Yes to Everything, is part of slipping down the rocks and shoals and waterfalls of life. And I I know I auditioned for the um, American Academy, which was a terrible school and which was the school that one was supposed to go to at the time. And I did a, you know, a really stupid monologue. The train is coming red, green, red, green. And I knew in the middle of it that I shouldn't be there. And so when I went to audition for the uh, Neighborhood Playhouse, they just asked me my name. They asked me and spoke to me. And Sanford Meisner, who was in the group theater, was the head of the Neighborhood Playhouse and one of the great, great, great teachers of all time. And I landed on safe ground. I landed in a place that would change my life totally and which gave me a, a base in which I had a, a religion, basically, because acting was at that time 
uh, the thing that I was fiercely enveloped in. Uh, two friends of mine have gone to the neighborhood playhouse in New Sandy Mosner. One didn't make it after the first year. They dropped from 100 people down to like 30 yes. or something. Yeah, they do. And the other one, I guess, went through the whole thing. He's still an actor. I've learned a little bit about the various techniques, but the idea is to relate yourself directly through these exercises, the repetition exercises, the one that I know about, to come to this place where you're real. Is that correct? I don't know that I could explain it, Richard. What the exercises did was when you were working on a character, even one that's as far from you as the shoplifter was, which was my first Broadway debut, that you and the character are one. It's I, Lee, I, the shoplifter. I am, what do I want? What, uh, what is my, where do I come from? I write it all out so that I have a base for my new life, my new story, and, and that's who I am. Once I transfer into that life, which I could have lived, any of the lives I've, I've done, I could have lived. And so I did live them. In a funny way, in a funny way, it's, it's like Shirley MacLaine having all those lives behind her. Well, I have too, only they're lives that I've played. Is it any different for, say, a role like um, Two for the Seesaw or Shampoo versus a role in a, a film like Savage Bees or what the bee one? Oh. <laughs> What's the name of that one? Well, I just remember my line. The bees are coming. Uh, <laughs> the bees are coming. Uh, yes. Well, y- you know, Richard, all of us actors have taken the best of roles and the worst of roles. And I tell you, I relish that one as, as much as I do the shoplifter and detective story because, <laughs> you know, I, I, really, I really had to keep from laughing through most of it. I had a good time. Lee Grant, you did Detective Story and then came The Blacklist. During that period, you were mostly out of work. I did go to IMDb, and I noticed that there were a whole grouping of Alcoa theater that were done during that time. What were those, and how did you get around The Blacklist for those? I don't know, actually. I don't know what strings were pulled but there were at least three times during the blacklist. I know that one of them was directed by Sidney Lumet and Ben Gazzara played opposite me, and I was just so shocked. It was a Tennessee Williams Mooney's Kid Don't Cry, uh, which you know had a very high visibility. So I don't know how they got me on, but uh, you know, once or twice or three times that slippage kind of happened during the blacklist. I also noticed you did something called The World of Sholem Aleichem, and when I looked at the cast, there were a lot of blacklisted people there. Morris Karnovsky, Zira Mostel. Was that another in that series that they managed to slip through? Well, that wasn't for the networks. Okay. That was for the equivalent of uh, NPR, you know, one, right. one of those things. What was it like working with Mostel? Well, I didn't really work with Mostel. What I did was have a friend in Katie and Zero Mostel because 
the people I were attracted to, that I was attracted to, were the blacklisted people. I had never met people like that before. To me, they were like royalty, you know, Dalton Trumbo and Ring Lardner and Zero Mostel. And, and so my choice to stay with the blacklisted people was because I looked up to them and revered them and learned from them. And they were my college. I, I was a, a very bad student in high school, uh, only in English, you know, that's the only thing. I, and so to meet people like this that filled my head with the kind of ideas that really I used later when I made documentaries, that was my learning experience. I, I, I grew up on Riverside Drive without a thought in my head, except when the next boy was gonna come by. And I still have some of that. But it was a great, great learning experience. And, and fortunately, I was young enough and maybe the only one to survive the blacklist and make it back to Hollywood. Uh, they were, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20, sometimes 30 years older than I was. I was a kid. And so, you know, th there may be like kind of re survivor's regret you know, that I felt that I was back and they weren't. But they gave me the feet that I stand on, the feet that I stood on to make documentaries, the will that I had to make it back for them in a way, you know, for people who were taken down. But I, I had a fanatical will after that period to work and nothing stopped me. And I did say yes to everything. When we're talking everything, there must have been some times where you had multiple jobs that you had to turn something down. I mean, there were choices along the way, I would think, some better roles and worse roles, right? The better or the worse. You know, when I got off the blacklist, I was 36. I had been blacklisted since I was 24. I couldn't work in film or television for all those years that I was an ingenue and a young leading lady, and as you know, uh, Hollywood, you know, at 36, you're, you're on the way out. So that my need to be younger and to lie about my age and to have my license changed and for my age not to be announced because I looked beautiful and I looked young. And as long as I could look it, I could get away with it. And that's something that, of course, everybody is into cosmetic surgery and everything now, but that was a, a desperate time for me to be 29, as far as they were concerned. Never hit 30, you know, in order to keep working. I had Dinah, I had a daughter, I was alone, and I had to support myself. Did you back off at all politically at first just because you were suddenly off the blacklist? I mean, how did that work for you? The issues were gone. I mean, as suddenly as the blacklist came in the 50s, you remember the 60s, and all the, that openness and the, the, the mad, breezy, political 60s and the Vietnam War came in and blew the blacklist away. I mean, it was as if it had never existed. And sure, you know, I did Peyton Place, my first job, big job after the blacklist. 
and I won an Emmy that first season. And I thought, you know, on the way to getting it, I thought, oh, God, the FBI is going to show up. Oh, God, they're going to tag me. And I, I was so chilled and so frightened. And, and Sinatra, who was going with Mia Farrow at the time, came up to me, and he said, cool it. I don't know how he knew how shaken I was at this exposure, but he did. And I think a lot of people in Hollywood at that time knew about me and knew my history and just kept on hiring me to make up for lost time. Kirk Douglas was particularly brave. He broke the blacklist for Spartacus, for Dalton Trumbo. You were friends with him at the time? I had been in Detective Story with Kirk Douglas before the blacklist. You know, that was the last, my first movie and my last movie. And he was, you know, the lead in Detective Story. And they they took me out from New York to play that part. And he was, you know, at that time, Kirk Douglas was, you know, the fiercest, most handsome, you know, guy in the world. And he was very empathetic with me after the blacklist. And finally, he blew the whistle on the fact that other writers were given uh, the credit for his movies and that it was really a blacklisted writer, Dalton Trumbo. And you know, the children of the blacklist, uh, Chris Trumbo, spent his life trying to get the credits back for his writer father. A A lot of the kids had no life of their own except to redeem their parents, which was a really shitty kind of way to live. And thank goodness my daughter, Dinah, Dinah Manoff, had a, you know, very big career of her own, a huge career of her own. And when she hit 40, she said, enough, enough. You don't want me, I don't want you. A couple of directors that you didn't mention in I Said Yes to Everything, Lee Grant, but you worked with. You worked with David Lynch on Mulholland Drive. What was that like? I worked with two people during the the last couple of years, with Bob Altman, who was a great friend of mine, and with David Lynch. Um, Because as I have forgotten names, when I was called in front of the committee, I have to tell this story because it's the you know, the bottom of it all. When I went in front of the committee, I took the Fifth Amendment because I knew everybody. And if they asked me, do you know Sidney Lumet? Do you know this one? Who was not a member of the party, by the way. Um, My lawyer advised me to take the Fifth Amendment. But when I got out of the committee, I went to introduce one friend to another. And I couldn't say their last names. I I couldn't even say their first names. It was as if something had triggered in my brain where I forget names. And what seemed to happen as time went on, and maybe it was a self-punishment, I don't know, but I had an incident when I was on Broadway in the Neil Simon play with Peter Falk where I went up one night and I forgot my lines. And... I did the movie with David Lynch and with Bob Altman because they were very tiny parts and I wanted to test myself to see if I would have that kind of trouble with the lines. 
And it was not worth the pressure. Really? I had put so much pressure on myself. I could, I could cry talking about it now. That I, you know, I could just could never live up to myself. The, the, the fear of not remembering, not the actual not remembering, but the fear of not remembering became such a block for me to do any acting that I just let myself off the hook and said, okay, I've tried it with a friend, I've tried it, it's not worth the agony, it's not worth the testing of myself, you know, fuck it. I'll, I'll just direct, or, or as in this case, I wrote it out. I wrote out all the problems. I wrote out all the things that have, yeah, you know, been so wonderful for me and not so wonderful. That incident that you mentioned with Peter Falk, which threw you, after that you didn't do much, but uh, you did last year, you were in the gin game, or two years ago? <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> First of all, first of all, my daughter Dinah lives on Bainbridge Island, which is right across from Seattle. And she has, you know, she, she is the worshipped teacher and director on Bainbridge Island, where many, many professionals live, and they adore her, and she adores them. And I visit her every summer, as I'm going to the day after tomorrow, after, you know, I'm finished here. And she uh, was going to direct the gin game. And it's a reading. It's not something you have to memorize. <laughs> so she said, Mom, do you want to do the gin game with this wonderful actor on Bainbridge? And, you know, this was like handing over myself to my daughter. Okay? And it was really kind of the last step that mother-daughter people take and I said okay and it was such a wonderful experience first of all I read it you know I didn't have to memorize it it's a two-character play and I loved doing it and she was so insightful and she was so wise in her in her insights that you know we came out of it bonded in a kind of a way that I guess the last way that we've, because we sure have bonded through the years. Getting back to Altman, there's of course the story that a lot of his movies are ad lib, but I guess uh, Dr. T was not? I don't think many of his movies are really ad lib. He'll go, you know, and say if, a, if an actor has something, if he, you know, you know go ahead and, right. and do it, but everything was written. What kind of freedom did you have in those early TV shows? I mean, things like The Defenders, Judge for the Defense, Ben Casey, any of those. Did you have any freedom to do things, the kind of things you might do on stage or in a movie with freedom, or was it pretty tight? It was tight. They, they were, you know, it's like any of the, the detective shows today. I mean, it's exactly, it's a replica of the detective right. shows today. You know, it was it, it, it was tight, but it was fun because it was live. Honey, you know, you're sitting in front of your set. You're seeing live people, you know, tripping over wires. Uh, you know, how cool was that? I talked to someone who said that doing three-camera comedy was very hard to do, the three-camera TV show, because you're spending so much time trying to figure out where you're supposed to stand. <laughs> 
absolutely. And, and you know, and I've I've been on on those shows when you see an actor like sneaking off in front of the camera. You know, it's like it, like anything could happen. And you know, but that's kind of delicious. You know. In your book, you pretty much put everything. Is there anything you left out that afterward you said, oh, damn, I wish I could have put that in? Do you remember? Yes, there were things that I, I wish I could put in. And two of them are enormous failures of mine. That through writing the book, I came to face myself on. They involve so many other people that I, that I couldn't write about it. But the things that I did find in writing was that it was it was not that bad to face myself. It untied, you know, a lot of past knots in me that needed to be faced and that I, I never was able to do with an analyst or or with a friend even. You know, I just, you know, sat at that desk in my bedroom and I uh, I laughed and I cried. Uh, and I never thought it would be published. Never. It was really for myself. So it's you know just so great that it that it's you know kind of a a successful book, which makes me very very happy. How did it come to be published? If you figured that you were just writing it for yourself. First of all, I sent the part about my first husband, Arne Manoff, to his best friend Walter Bernstein who was also a Hollywood writer at that time, because I wanted to make sure that what I wrote about our married life and political life was all right with Walter. He is like uh, one of the best men I know. And he said, it's okay. He said, you can write about that. And then I sent it to Letty Pogrebin, because she was one of the founders of Ms. And she sent it to her agent. She didn't even ask me. She sent it to her agent. And the next thing I knew, her agent called. And I had, a, I had an agent for the book suddenly. And suddenly it had gone out of my you know, bedroom window into somebody else's you know, selling space. And that's really how it happened. When you first began directing, your first directing, Tell Me a Riddle, was an amazing movie and an independent. But at that point, as you mentioned in I Said Yes to Everything, there were virtually no women directors. And going back, even to the 30s, you just had Ida Lupino and Dorothy Arsner. There was nobody. You had no role models for that. Amy Heckerling, there were a couple of other people. Yes, there there were. uh, Joan um, Micklin-Silver. But, you know, that never occurred to me. You know, it just really never occurred to me that uh, there were women directors or weren't. Uh, this was a new love. The AFI had, had asked a small group of women to do uh, some independent films, and I'd, I'd fallen in love, as I'd fallen in love with acting. And then these three kids in San Francisco, these three college kids, sent me the novella for for Tell Me a Riddle and said, would you like to direct it? Because they saw this little film that I'd made at AFI. And uh, I said, yes, of course. I never thought, you know, well, I'm a girl, I can't. It never even occurred to me that it was 
something novel for a, a woman to do. And so I did it, and here in San Francisco, and it was my first, first step towards directing here. Later I did a documentary called What Sex Am I? About trans, yeah, trans, transvestites, and, which was a wonderful, wonderful documentary. So my whole relationship here in San Francisco is the beginning of, of my second life to me. Maybe my third, <laughs> probably my twelfth, but it, it it has you know enormous connotations of new beginnings. Obviously, directing a fiction film is very different than directing a documentary. Yes, absolutely. Um, when you're directing a documentary, you're dealing with countless hours of material that you have to hone down to turn into this film. I mean, how long does that did it take you to edit these these documentaries? You remember? About a year. What kind of control did you have over the films that the fiction films you did direct? Well, uh, I mean, uh, the story funny, of the music. It's <laughs> yes, funny you should say, but I don't think anybody has control except I insisted on it because I didn't know any better, and uh, and so I shot I shot uh, Tell Me a Riddle, and I edited uh, Tell Me a Riddle uh, with Susan Pettit in uh, my garage in Malibu. And when the three young college women who had developed this whole thing, who had gotten Tilly Olson's permission, who had paid for everything, asked for a second edit on Tell Me a Riddle, they found themselves in a cage with a tiger. They didn't know what hit them. Because by that time, this was my movie. These were my people. This was my film. And they didn't know what hit them. When I see Tell Me a Riddle now, I say, oh my God, I wished. You know, I'm so self-indulgent in this film. There are so many places where it could be tightened and where they could have done a, you know, a great job. But at that time, I didn't know it. I was in love. And they were trying to tear my lover uh, you know, out of my arms. And so all I can do, hopefully, is apologize to Mindy Afrin and, and to uh, Susan O'Connell and to uh, Rachel, and and uh, tell them I'm sorry. Had you ever thought, I mean, you didn't do it, but had you ever thought of starring or having a role in films you directed? No. Oh, it's such a relief not to be in front of the camera when you were in back of it. I mean, it's I could not, never think of splitting myself into it. It's an entirely different part of yourself, you know? When you were serving as a director of these films, you'd been with so many great directors who did you best want to emulate as a director, do you think? Was there anybody, Hal Ashby? Yeah, it was Hal Ashby, who, who gave total freedom. You know, Hal Ashby would say, when you show up on set, surprise me. And so that's what I tried to take to the films that I directed. Surprise me. And always, if you cast properly, because, you know, the talent is, you know, deep and amazing and, and shows up everywhere. And actors do what they do best. You know, it's just a, a gift. I've talked to directors who said, theater directors, who said that once you've cast properly, you've done like 80% of the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that lesson was first uh, said to me by Garson Kanan 
when I was in a, a Broadway play that he directed. And on the way out of town, I, I said to him, you know, you, you haven't given any directions. How, how are we doing? How, you know? And he said, you know, all of the work is in the casting. A couple of other questions, Lee Grant. In 1980, Arnie's son accused you of giving Arnie's name, which you never did, and you talk about that. question about that is that Arnie was blacklisted at that point. Why did they want you to give his name? Uh, well, that's a question you'd have to ask the committee. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, Tommy was absolutely right in the fact that they wanted me to name sure. my husband. And I think I was the last one kept on the blacklist because I wouldn't name my husband. And I wouldn't name anybody. And that's why I was kept out of film and television for 12 years. But that was something that Tommy needed to believe at the time. And it was something that hurt me and that I coped with. And in the writing of the book, I was able to explore it and expose it and, and put it to rest. Ilya Kazan, Jerome Robbins did give names. And what's sad about the Robbins is he gave, of Jerome Robbins, is he gave names because he was afraid of being exposed but being gay. Right. How do you think about those people today? I mean, are, have you forgiven them? Oh, I think so. I think so. I, the times are so hard to, to make one realize what re we really lived through how damaging it was, how hard it was for people who were at the top of their game, who were making the highest salaries in, in Hollywood as actors, as directors, as writers, to suddenly be taken down, be sent to jail for not naming each other, for not saying this one is a communist. I mean, it was, it was so bizarre, so dark, so Alice in Wonderland, that you, you really can't know what that period was like. You know, I keep looking at people like Ted Cruz and Scott Walker and, you know, Donald Trump and that whole clown car of Republicans today, and I keep thinking, is memory such that we could go through something like that again? Well, in a different form. Actually, actually, the, the group that you mentioned were the kind of guys who were part of the Un-American Activities Committee. When I entered there as a, you know, 20-something-year-old and looked at these guys who were saying, do you know, and I mean, and one of them said to me, uh, do you have an agency? And I said, yes. And they said, uh, name that agency. And I said, the William Morris Agency, which is a well-known theatrical agency, and they said, uh, are they a red agency? <laughs> I mean, you, you know, they were the Trump and Scott Walker and Ted Cruz of the time. I mean, they were so bizarre to me that, that I felt like Alice, you know, looking at the, the cat in the tree. They were so crazy. But the crazies, I mean, and McCarthy, who could be crazier than, than Senator McCarthy? 
or Roy Cohen, but the crazies were running the country. And Donald Trump is, is not unlike a McCarthy in terms of, of being, you know, that kind of bizarre right. character. As someone who broke the glass ceiling as a woman director, we have a lot of great women directors now and great women playwrights. How close do you think we're getting to at least a minimum of parity? Not, no, nowhere near. Especially now that independent films are really almost made for Sundance, you know, and the Hollywood product is pretty much the Big Bang movies and the Disney stuff, which is, you know, fine for kids and for the adults who, who love them and they're good. But for the kind of films that I made in the 70s, for the Coppolas, for the, for the Hal Ashby's, for the Norman Jewisons, for all those directors who had taken over Hollywood at that time and were making the, the most amazing films that I think we've ever made. And I was, you know, privileged to be, to be a part of it, yeah. lucky to be a part of it. You know, there's not that kind of... You know, the stuff that's on television are things that I just can't get over. The uh, Ray Donovan's, the uh, Rectify, I don't know where that came from, you know. But the work that I'm seeing, it from the actors right. and from the writers, and you know, is, it just knocks me out. True uh, Detective last year with McConaughey, did you see that? Yes, a True Detective this year, I, I think, is really bizarre. But, <laughs> yes, that's what but, I said last year. <laughs> but, but not bizarre in, in the same way that they were. But that's where I look for right. the things that I, that I want to watch, and the documentaries. The documentaries are like, you know, just amazing. Do you kind of miss the fact that you've kind of retired from that uh, do you miss the fact that had you been younger, you would probably be on those television shows or even directing them? I don't think I could ask for a better choice than I fell into in yeah. the movies that I made, both acting in, in those movies and in the documentaries that I was able to make. My Down and Out in America, Down and Out in America also won an Oscar. Right. And, and I haven't seen anything to equal it. And uh, we are now in the same place. I mean, you could show Down and Out in America, all, and all it would be is a reflection of what we're seeing today. And I had the, the, the privilege in those days of turning those documentaries into movies of the week. So I made documentaries. I turned them into movies of the week, which at that time had like a 40 million viewership, you know, that saw the plight of the people who I was, you know, bringing to the screen. So I had a pretty amazing run. You went on a date early on with Marlon Brando, which you mentioned in the book. What was it like first meeting him? What did you see? Did you see him perform at the studio? What was your first reaction to Brando? There was a kind of community uh, brownstone on West 52nd Street where Maureen Stapleton lived on the third floor. I have a, a sore throat, I'm okay. sorry. And Marlon lived on the ground floor. And across the street were all the, the jazz clubs, and that was the kind of atmosphere. Well, I was 
you know, a Riverside Drive girl, and, and we were both in the studio, but they were a, another tribe to me. I had never seen or met anybody like Maureen or Marlon or any of the people who hung out. I mean, Marlon was stomach-dropping. I mean, for a, a, a kind of, you know, rural, uptown Scarlet O'Hara like me, I mean, I just made no impression on him at all. He was like my Ashley Wilkes. I say this because I saw Gone with the Wind on the plane coming here from New York yesterday, so I'm full of of, uh, Gone with the Wind. But, you know, he was, you know, so gorgeous. And then after I'd seen him in Streetcar, he was so talented that it, it took one's breath away. And so I was with my Irish boyfriend, and I had to be like 18 at the time, 18, 19 at the time, and he asked me for my telephone number. And of course, you know, acting as if I didn't care about him, and right in front of my Irish boyfriend, I gave him my number. I mean, but I gave it to him as if, as if it was the last thing in the world I wanted him to have. You know, the two didn't go together. I mean, I was a pushover, and he knew it. And so we had this kind of marvelous date in which I had to show him how resistant I was and that I was not a pushover and I was not going to be his. And, of course, I should have, you know. (laughs) I would would have loved to have been telling you how he was in bed, you know, and, and how great, you know. But I was stupid. And so he picked me up on his uh, bike, on his motorbike, and uh, took me to this dumb place where a naked girl was playing with a python. And I sat there stunned because we didn't talk. We watched the girl, you know, and a python. And then he took me home, and, and I just, you know, went inside. And it was over. It was the wrong place to take me. <laughs> it was the wrong place. I think, you know, with music or with dancing or with something else, it would have been a different story. Did you ever meet him again years later in Hollywood? Uh, no. No, I, I'd seen him very often at the studio and, and around. And there was always, you know, that little charge that I think every girl who met Marlon had. I mean, there was an electricity coming from him. And he was incomparably beautiful. Also incomparably great, no matter what, even down to the end. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's your favorite performance of all the ones that you've done? Can you single out one or two? Would it be shampoo? Can you single out? Or anything that's small role that you just blew everyone away that isn't recognized today? I always found fault with myself. I always, you know, I, there was never anything that I, that I liked unconditionally. No, no. How about a performance where you gave one performance and then you watch the movie and you're going, wait a second, did I do that? Yeah, I think Heat of the Night hit me, you know, and, and being told that my husband was dead, that, that it pushed me into a personal place that... that uh, that just happened, that was improvised, and that's kind of painful for me to watch. And of course, uh, the landlord, the landlord, the scene with Pearl Bailey, 
Yeah, that was a hoot. <laughs> that was really cool. We're running out of time, but I want to go back to uh, two things. First of all, you work with Joseph Mankiewicz on There Was a Crooked Man. Yes. What was What was working with Mankiewicz like? Oh God, please! I mean, it was so funny. I was I was in in Plaza Suite in L.A. and and this you know year long run of it. And Joe Mankiewicz came came backstage, and he said, "I I want you for one day on There Was a Crooked Man." And I said, oh, God, I, I can't do a play and get up in the morning and 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 do a movie and and you know come back and do the play that night. It's you know I can't do it. I don't have the and he said, but guess who your leading man is? Kirk Douglas. And I said, what? He said, and you go to bed with him. And I said, you mean <laughs> from the shoplifter in the Kirk Douglas movie detective story in the back room to actually going to bed with Kirk Douglas? <laughs> yes, of course. How could I resist? <laughs> So, you know, we spent this really bizarre day with no connection at all. I mean, it was like, you know, he was doing his thing. I was getting, you know, primed in my trailer for this, you know, big romantic moment. And I got into bed and Kirk said to me, Now, Lee, now, Lee, when, when I get into bed, my arm is going to go here this way, my leg will go between yours here, and then my other arm will be here, and then we'll kiss. Is that okay with you? <laughs> and I just looked at him, I thought, and I said to him after, you don't know what you missed, buddy. You don't know what you missed. <laughs> you do make mention of another one of the those great movies that you made perhaps the greatest, Airport 77. <laughs> Joseph Cotton, Jimmy Stewart. Oh, my oh, friend oh. Brenda Vaccaro. Please, uh, hallowed ground. And you had a blast doing it. You had fun. I did. I had fun doing it. I mean, listen, when you're, when you're 27,000 leagues below the ocean in an airplane, you know, what can go wrong? <laughs> well, when you're on a, a, a film, I, I once interviewed Michael York, and I asked him what was the, you know, if you're choosing a role, what's your number one priority? I expected him to say, oh, the script, my role. And he said, the people I'm working with, I want to have fun, and the location. Does that make sense to you? Well, Michael York is... <laughs> He is, you know, one of the most charming guys. And he's a socialite. You know, he's a, a socialite slash actor. And, and, and you want to be in a movie with him because he's going to know all the right places to eat, all the right people to <laughs> hang out with, and he's going to have a ball. So I would go into any movie that Michael York was in. But that's not how you look at it. You would, when you would see something, you would for, the first thing you would see. Would you worry about the whole script or just your role? Just mine. Just, just mine. Yeah, just mine. Because I I know the whole script. I've read it, and then it's none of my business. You know, all that's my business is my you know my track in it, and blank out on everybody else's, so that uh, so that they'll have somebody fresh to play with. Is there such a thing as being overprepared? Um, 
I imagine, I imagine that there is. Yeah, I, I, I would think that if you, if you, you, if you were so close-minded on the things that you wanted to do, that you didn't leave yourself open to surprise, which is, you know, the thing that so pleasures you as an actor, to be surprised by what other people do. And I mean, it's that, you know, wonderful thing that, that the comedies have today, the Judd, Judd Apatow yeah. you know, things, that, that there's always an element of, oops, you know, how great, how cool. And that's the thing, I guess, about being on the stage, because you're saying the same lines and you're saying the same character, but there has to be something there that's going to make you go, I want to do this. Well, you surprise yourself every night, you know, and, and that is a gift that actors give themselves to say, this is the first time I've ever done this, no matter how many times I've rehearsed it. This time, I am not going to know anything. I'm going to step into a fresh canvas, and, and what's going to come out is something that I can't predict. And certainly that happens. There are times when things are, you know, just strike you as, you know, sadder or funnier or, or weirder or, or fresh, fresher. You know, that's what you want, is you want it to be fresher. And if somebody goes up on their lines, it's your job to pick them up. Well, that's what I've always had actors do. Actors save actors. That's why you have a, a family of actors. When you go on stage, those actors you're, you're on stage with are your family. They are closer to you. They mean more to you. They are the people you see every night. They are your loved ones. That's why actors are so uh, close. And, and so when, when you go up on, on stage, you know somebody is going to be there to catch you. You know, it's like you're a trapeze artist, and the net is going to be there for you. So when I went up on stage in, um, when I went up on stage in Prisoner of Second Avenue, and Peter didn't catch me, it was um, a, a blow, which lasted the rest of my life, uh, because I didn't trust myself anymore. Lee Grant, one final question. Now you've written, I said yes to everything. Have you been writing something since? No, I haven't, and, and I'd like to, because it was, you know, it, it took four years for me to get me out of my system, uh, but I would like to. It was a great experience for me and and I I did a lot of a lot of crying and a, a lot of you know shaking of my head how could you do that but it was a big emotional journey for me and I was honest with myself and and I came out the other side so who else am I going to write about that's the problem well there's always acting no <laughs> no <laughs> no more well, what about writing about acting? I might. I'm, I'm thinking now. You know, I'm still in the kind of afterbirth, you know, afterbirth of this book. And the reason I say that is because what I found underneath the surface, getting away from the personal stuff, is there's a lot about acting in there. A lot about acting. Yes, a lot of people have, have asked me to do something on that. 
and I'm think I'm thinking about it, but but you know it was all so tied up with my personal life at that time. You know, with who I was with, with Dinah, who Dinah saved my life. I was going through so much that to have a little girl to have to bring money home to, to feed, to have an apartment for, to live for, in a sense. She pulled me through. And so all of the acting and the work was so tied up with, with pulling myself, you know, making money for her, that uh, I wouldn't know how to look at it any other way. Thank you. And that was actress and director Lee Grant, whose memoir is titled, I Said Yes to Everything. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>